Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. This time around, we have a really special treat for you. A two-part crash course in sake, which is one of those fermented beverages that's part of our Western social consciousness, but not something most of us know a whole lot about. And you know me, if there's a subject in the world of booze that could use a bit more coverage, I am so there. So when I met our interview guest, Lara Victoria, at the American Distilling Institute Annual Judging of Craft Spirits this past January, I knew we needed to put together an episode or two on sake. She's a WSET certified educator in wine, spirits, and sake. That's the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. And when you hear Laura talk about flavor and process, this deep knowledge really shines through. We give you a really good rundown of what that organization offers at the beginning of our interview because we've been getting an increasing amount of email questions about educational programs. So heads up to all the folks out there who are looking to get some certifications under their belts. We hear you and we've got some good resources for you in this episode. Now, I'm super excited to let you in on all the sake-related topics we discuss in this interview. But come on, what kind of host would I be if I didn't give you the chance to make yourself a drink? This week's featured drink is unfortunate. It's, yeah, it's unfortunate because we need to get this out of the way because I think it's a bit of an abomination amidst the cocktail community. It's called the Sake Bomb. Now, let me be clear. I don't think the Sake Bomb is an actual cocktail. It's a bastardized boiler maker, aka a shot in a beer. I'm a little hesitant about posting a formal recipe for a Sake Bomb because it's basically this. You take a shot of sake, you drop it in your beer glass, preferably with a Japanese beer like a Sapporo, and you chug, you, you, you drink. Now, this drink, which is absolutely not a cocktail, inhabits the same unfortunate space as the Irish car bomb, which is also somewhat relevant since St. Patrick's Day wasn't that long ago. But if you look closely, it's a mild boiler maker, a shot and a beer, as I said earlier. And I say mild because sake is a fermented beverage rather than a distilled one. So where you'd usually sip a shot while drinking a beer, this is a drink you can merge and mingle because the ABV isn't all that different between the two liquids. With the beer, you're looking at about eight to 10 ounces of 5% alcohol. And with the shot, you're looking at one to two ounces of 15 to 18% alcohol. Overall, the sake bomb is a bit of a novelty drink where people who want to get silly pretend to be drinking actual spirits. And that's cool if you want to get into the festivities of a whitewashed hibachi session. But I chose the sake bomb as this week's featured cocktail because I think we're about to learn a bunch of things about sake that will encourage you to broaden your horizons and try sake both on its own and next time as a targeted addition to really great craft cocktails. And with that said, let's turn our attention back to this excellent conversation with sake expert, Lara Victoria. Some of the things we discuss in part one of this interview include how Lara took her childhood passions for food and photography and turned them into a life-sustaining vocation. What it takes to make sake, including the many ways it's different from beer and wine in both its flavor profile and production methods. 
the strange and wonderful world of Koji, a mold. That's right, you heard me, a mold that transforms rice into a vessel for alcohol. The different classifications and quality levels associated with sake, resources for learning more about sake, wine, and spirits, and as always, come on guys, much, much more. As I mentioned earlier, this is part one of a two-part episode. Next time, we'll continue this conversation with Lara to include food and sake pairing advice, alternative sake classifications, and lightning round questions. But for now, please enjoy, and I hope you can enjoy it as much as I did because I had a great time talking to her. Please enjoy this eye-opening and spirited conversation with my friend, wine, spirits, and sake expert, Lara Victoria. Lara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So we met a couple months ago doing a little bit of spirits judging in California. And uh, yeah, it was just great to meet you. And uh, can, can you just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Lara Victoria, as you know, and I am a wine, spirits, and sake educator at the heart of all my work in the beverage alcohol industry. Um, I'm also a food stylist and a food photographer. In terms of my background, well, I guess we can go quite back. Um, let's just start way back when I was, say, seven, actually. My father, who is, uh, in fact, an accomplished photographer and loves photography, gave me my very first Minolta cartridge camera. I don't know if you remember those prehistoric things, but um, yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> my mother thought he was actually out of his mind giving a seven-year-old girl a real camera as a toy. But I guess my father saw something in me that I myself wasn't aware of. And in fact, uh, some of my early pictures um, were actually quite funny. Um, I would take pictures of people with just their heads, and the rest was just beautiful cumulus clouds in the sky. And people always kind of thought my um, proportional um, uh, framing was rather funny and I guess now it's uh, it's a thing but anyway um, I always got a few friendly laughs out of that one but my father as I said uh, placed his camera in my hands and uh, um, it started something in me now my mom was interesting she was you know he was a photographer and she turned out to be the a test kitchen chef in my home um, both my mom and dad were beautiful fantastic cooks actually but uh, my mom was very interesting. She had this kind of mission to either recreate a really delicious dish that we tasted at some restaurant, um, or she would want to actually improve it. So I, I really find it uh, interesting now when I look back that my mom was actually probably one of my first teachers of taste, and uh, if I may say so, really good taste. So, so much of my work in wine, spirits, and sake involves, as you know, identifying characteristics of the base ingredient or the process of its production, and then assessing value and quality based on those references. Well, my mom was modeling that practice to me since my earliest recollection, recollection as a child, as a child, you know, in preschool. So anyway, fast forward to university and formal training. My bachelor's degree, uh, after, I, after I finished that, uh, my love for food kind of kicked in back, and uh, I decided to go back to school and um, study culinary arts, uh, particularly desserts. I love desserts. I have a sweet tooth. <laughs> so um, I was trained as a pastry chef, but it wasn't really to make it a career, but just because you know I wanted to learn about it. And one good thing with this education um, was that um, it teaches you food science and it also allows uh, for an avenue, a creative avenue and that really helped me and that was perfect for me. Well I did that but then you know life goes on and life happened and voila just like that I'm a mom with family and responsibilities and I had no time to attend to what I really liked and in fact I was in banking for a while completely unrelated to food and everything but I was in banking. Um, my children started getting older and my family needed uh, my focus so I quit my job and uh, and uh, you know no regrets about that because it was probably one of the most rewarding things in raising my children. 
But that said, it's also challenging, as any parent might know, and uh, I needed a mental stimulus. So um, the my love for food came a calling once more. And um, it just happened, so happened that my husband, who actually has a well-developed palate for wine, introduced me to wine, as a matter of fact. And I got curious about it. And we he talked about pairing wines. And uh, my mother's habit of tasting food and deciphering its ingredients just came to life. And, um, uh, you know, that coupled with my experience in education and food science opened up a whole new series of interesting things for me. So um, I signed up for a course, my first WSET course in wines, and uh, well, I was hooked. And then I completed all my certifications in wines and spirits and decided that I was going to engage my focus, professional focus in wines and spirits. So I started a consulting company called Crew Class Hospitality Corp, uh, doing work for a few restaurants and private clients, mainly writing wine lists and for private clients, even uh, you know helping them set up their cellar, that sort of thing. So as you know, I live in Vancouver, and we have our very own fabulous Okanagan Valley. Have you tried wines from Okanagan Valley, by the way? I have not, actually. I've definitely been seeing them uh, sort of on the rise in popularity, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I have not actually had the pleasure. Do you want to talk a little bit about that that little local region that you have access to? I do. I'm so proud of it. You know, it's it's this little hidden gem. Um, I think the world does not know of Okanagan as yet. It really is a small place and production is by no means even close to anything comparable to other you know, fabulous wine regions. But that said, it is in its own right a really wonderful uh, place. Um, there's been there's people here with heart who actually uh, love wines and love to deliver good wines and produce good wines. So if you get a chance to ever visit I mean, first you've got to give me a call because you've got to come to Vancouver first. And then, uh, uh, you know, I'd be happy to take you around there. Or or any of the listeners, if you're in uh, BC, you must make it a point to visit the Okanagan Valley. And there's so many beautiful regions and a variety of uh, different uh, grape varieties are grown there and wines that are made. And you will, I assure you, you will be impressed. So um, that's my that's my little pitch for Okanagan Valley, and uh, I'm so proud of it. Yes, make sure you, you do visit. Yeah, that sounds really wonderful. And I what I what I really like about uh, listening to you talk about your background is that you've got a couple things going for you that that like as you explained kind of converged to bring you into this wine and spirits space. You've got this very early kind of introduction to the kind of intimacy and the the deep emotional attachments that that we can have to food because you grew up in a in a household where obviously you know flavor was really important and mm-hmm. then you've got the culinary background and not just the culinary background but the the pastry background in particular mm-hmm. when i think yeah. of uh i guess desserts or baking as opposed to cooking i think i i th- i i think of this very kind of specific divide between art and science. Whereas if, <laughs> if you make a little mistake on the yeah. on the stovetop, you can kind of correct it by eye. But if you True. make a mistake measuring your baking powder or your baking soda, <laughs> you're just ruined. Your, your dessert is, you might as well just throw it away. So there's a precision with that yes. that, that really, I, I think, helps. Because I remember when you and I were, were sitting around the judging table and we were talking <laughs> about some of these rums, which is just, it was, it was, it was an incredible experience. Um, yeah. But uh, but like the precision is is really important. Yeah. So just hearing you talk about that is is uh, just re- really exciting to me because I I, I really love the WSET, which uh, is the Wine mm-hmm. and Spirits Education Trust. I think they Correct. they have tremendous educational materials, and mm-hmm. I, it's really exciting. Can you just talk a little bit more for our listeners who might want, not be familiar with that, uh, and mm-hmm. then kind of explain um, like the, the different levels of certifications, and then maybe we can jump into our uh, topic today, sure. which is sake. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, so the WSET is, as you rightly mentioned, the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. It's uh, out of the UK. And um, I think I chose them primarily because there are other schools, wonderful schools that do teach wine and spirits as well. But my um, focus, and I think I was, uh, I was drawn to them really because of that precision, they do not cut corners. They teach you. Their business is education, and they take it very, very seriously. And uh, I must say, uh, they are open to different uh, new new things. As as we're going to talk about sake, this is something that I, I think they might have been in the international realms, some of the first to actually have uh, taken on sake when they already had a very established program in wines and spirits. They, like I said, they cut no corners. The business, uh, the business is education, and they take it very seriously. So I would highly recommend if anybody you know wants to um, ever start, definitely uh, consider WSET because I know my journey was a pleasant one. And uh, they do have there are um, so there's wines have three levels: level the certification levels. There's a level one, which is an introductory. Then there's a two and a three. Uh, there. At the moment, they do have the level two is a wines and spirits certification. However, as of this year, that is going to stop and it's going to be just a level two because they are now introducing uh, level three in spirits on the, on its own. So um, it is um, it's so wines and spirits wines will have three certifications and then spirits would uh, have their own three. And sake, interestingly, has uh, a level one. And there is no level two at the moment, but there is a level three because the knowledge um, level or the, the, the material really jumps from level one to level three. So um, the other thing is I highly recommend if anyone is new to sake or rather has is familiar with sake and thinks that uh, they could just go to level three, they probably could. However, there is so much information in level one that uh, it would just help them prepare better for the level three if they did do the level one. So uh, that is uh, pretty much about um, WSET. There's, um, if you just go online in the line, WSETglobal.com, you will find them. Yeah, and I, I like what you uh, how you kind of explain the distinction between the various levels. I have my uh, WSET level two certification in wines and spirits, uh, and I think the rigor of that class was just right for me at the time. I did it maybe five to seven years ago, and mm -hmm. it was challenging. I, mm -hmm. I didn't have too too much experience with wine. I had a little bit. And mm -hmm. it was it was challenging, but not inaccessible. So I, I'd say, you know, if somebody, if if a listener out there knows a little bit about wine, uh, mm -hmm. I, I would say it's it's possible to to skip up to the level two. Uh, but you, you yeah. certainly wouldn't want to skip up to the level three without without completing the level two. Absolutely, it is. Uh, it's very. It, what you're saying is true in terms of the rigor. And so I finished uh, after I after I did my WSET level three. I went on and I completed. Uh, I did the diploma, which people thought I was crazy for doing because at the time I was not in the the industry, actually working in the industry. So remember, I was raising my children and trying to study at the same times. But uh, it was a. It's again no corners cut. Um, it was a very well-structured program. It was divided at the time. Now, the, the, the diploma is just focused on wines, or that will be starting pretty soon. Whereas when I did it, it was wines and spirits. And uh, it was fantastic. There was, like I said, the, the resources in terms of inspiring a student, if you are willing to learn. Uh, there are plenty that are provided by WSET, and they really do support their students. And I would say even their approved program providers. So now I am a certified educator for WSET, uh, certified to teach all levels of their certification. And um, um, they, I, I, my business crew class hospitality uh, corp is in what they call an APP, approved program provider. So basically I'm licensed to teach their, uh, their courses. Um, the support that they provide for us as educators is also tremendous. So ultimately, the student always benefits if they need direct support or they need support through their uh, course provider. Uh, WSET is always there. So I'm very grateful to be uh, part of that uh, that educational experience, I might say. 
Yeah, and we'll definitely throw some links on the show notes page to various mm-hmm. WSET resources. I'll link to uh, the Capital Wine School here in the Washington, D.C. area. We can also That's throw in great. some links to Crew Class A Hospitality uh, so that folks Thank can you. can definitely check out that. And I think this would be a great mm-hmm. time for us to mm-hmm. uh, jump into uh, this, the world of sake. And when you were mentioning that they don't have a level two it, mm-hmm. For the WSET, it's it's perfect. It's a it's this is a perfect example of exactly what I experienced when I started trying to do a little research to prepare for this interview because yeah, it's so complicated. Uh, <laughs> and I, I don't think there that we have any hope of of getting to like that 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 level three in this conversation. But but That's maybe true. um what we could do is is just have you start by explaining what sake is. Absolutely, and you're, you're you're totally right. You know, for someone in the Western world or outside Japan, let's just put it that way, it can seem daunting in so many ways. But really, it's so fascinating that if you show some interest, it's like the world of sake just opens up for you. I mean, that's what happened to me. So, sake is an alcoholic beverage made from rice. That's pretty much the first thing. It's neither a wine nor a beer. A lot of people think it's a beer because it is produced in a brewery, but the fact is that it is its unique production is, is is exactly that unique, and it's different from a beer and different from a wine. Now, sake tends to be generally uh, slightly off dry naturally. Of course, there are some really dry styles uh, which are fabulous as well, but generally they do show a touch of sweetness. It's also lighter lighter in um, acidity, lighter than wine rather, uh, and um, that. In many ways, you know, some people when they, uh, they when they try wines uh, and then sake, they kind of think, well, I'm, uh, not too sure about it. So you see, in in grapes, it has natural acidity. So when we taste it in wines, it's readily available to us in so many ways. With sake, it's made from rice, and as you can imagine, rice first and foremost has no sugars, so it needs to be uh, converted from carbohydrates into sugars, and then in, and then the yeast takes over to ferment into alcohol. However, in terms of acidity, the acidity really comes from either the process of making uh, sake or the yeast, for example. So in in terms of comparison, it really cannot compare to wine. There are some sakes that are slightly more acidic. uh, And in fact, the new generation of sake makers are bringing in uh, such experiences to their sake because they are either influenced by the wine world themselves or are trying to attract wine palates. So that's addressing uh, the acidity. Another interesting fact is that sake is sulfite-free. So for those who are sensitive to sulfites, sake is a great option. And, you know, at about 15 to 17% uh, in terms of alcohol, it is only slightly higher than some Central Coast Californian Zinfandels. Right. And certainly less than, you know, most fortified wines. So in it certainly is related to the family of wines in a way when it comes to alcohol. So it's not a spirit either. Um, you can certainly enjoy it with meal with with any meal just like a wine. Now this brings me to a very attractive feature about sake. It is said that sake does not fight with food. That holds so true in my book. Given its gentler acid prof- profile, it is always a gracious companion supporting the food it is served with. It never takes the focus off the food, which is why some psalms everywhere love pairing dishes with sake. Also, as it is made from rice, you can guess it is naturally gluten-free. So uh, for people who uh, you know, sometimes are worried about gluten, this is, again, another wonderful alternative. So sake's virtues don't end there at all. In fact, it has longer shelf life than wine does. So normally, think about it. You get a bottle of wine, and uh, if any remains at all, um, you must consume it within a day or two at the most. But with sake, if it's stored correctly, basically in a cool spot and away from light, a sake can stay fresh for up to two weeks, depending on the style of sake. So if you buy a bottle... You can, in fact, stretch it out and amortize it over a greater period of time than wine and not feel bad about wasting it just because, you know, you go, darn, it's out, it's out of condition. But the fact is, you know, you can actually use sake is, stays for, like, as I said, one to two weeks. So uh, you can certainly enjoy a few meals with that. So when um, when you open a bottle of sake 
I, I guess one of my big questions, and, and maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but mm-hmm. is, it, is it usually enjoyed warm or room temperature uh-huh. or, or chilled? Because I'm thinking, so we're, we're talking about the comparison between sake and wine and how it's similar in some ways, but also very distinctly different. So I wonder a little bit about the, the service temperature and, and then also the, uh, the storage temperature. Can you just store it at room temperature once it's open? Uh, once it's open, you could you could uh, you could store as long as it's in the coolest spot. Don't put it in something in a place that's really warm. Like on your counter is fine. In, in the heart of summer, please don't do that. Maybe stick it in a the fridge then. But generally speaking, yes, it's fine. Uh, you could it, it doesn't need anything uh, too special. Now uh, keep it away from light. Keep it away from sunlight. Uh, not a good friend, um, and you should be fine. Think of it as a wine in that respect when you're taking, when you're storing it. But in terms of length, it definitely is uh, this, the shelf life is more. Um, with respect to um, the temperature, that actually is a very good question, and because I hear that all the time, and there are so many misconceptions about it. So, first, allow me to clear one myth about sake. But good quality sakes, it is said, are always served cold and poor quality sakes are always heated. You know, that is such an unfair statement. And um, I understand the reference uh, to good quality sake. I suppose here it is, we will talk about the different grades of sake. So the higher grades of sake, which are, you know, mainly fruity and floral and very beautiful and elegant. Now, of course, if you heat something as elegant as that, you will tend to lose these beautiful um delicate aromas and flavors. But there is a new school of thought that actually does experience something else. While you lose these light aromas and flavors, there are others that, as you say, you wake them up uh, with, with this with the warmth. And you get to enjoy those, you know, which you would otherwise not enjoy. So um, while, yes, I understand why they say that uh, the higher grades of sake, like ginjos and daiginjos, are pref- uh, preferably served uh, chilled, and I do agree with that. Uh, if you do happen to heat that, it's not lost. <laughs> You'll still enjoy sake. So um, in terms of, in fact, you know, let's do this. If I may be so bold to recommend something, um, there's a here's a delightfully tasty experiment. If you get a bottle of sake, taste it chilled, and then at about, say, ambient room temperature, which I do understand would be very different in, say, Toronto from or Vancouver, you know, even though we're in the same country, uh, it could be in depending what season. So ambient room temperature, when I mean, is usually between, say, 15 to – it can range actually 15 to 25, but usually 15 to 20 is a sweet spot, and I mean Celsius. Uh, so get a bottle, um, taste it chilled, then about at room temperature, and then taste it warm. I can assure you it will seem like you are tasting three different sakes altogether. You know, that's what makes a psalm's job so interesting. A sake psalm at any restaurant, oh my gosh, that's a gorgeous, uh, you know, opportunity. Like if a diner orders a bottle of sake, you can totally enhance the experience by serving it warm with, say, perhaps a soup chilled or at room temperature with a salad. And then depending on the main course, Pour the sake warm if it's something like a stewed or braised uh, preparation. Or again, you know, uh, even chilled would be fantastic if it's if it's something like perhaps a seafood or scallops. You know, now you can do this with wine, but with sake, there is so much opportunity. I mean, there are exceptions to every rule, of course. And, you know, when we talk about sparkling sake, that's one you always serve chilled. I mean, it has no business being warmed. So uh, sparkling sake, definitely always chilled. And um, um, to give you, to actually quantify these temperatures, a range, when I say chilled, we're talking, say, 15, uh, sorry, uh, 10 to 5 to 10 degrees Celsius. That is about, I understand, roughly 40 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, something at room temperature or ambient temperature, 15 to 25 degrees Celsius. Again, that would be roughly 60 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit. And, of course, hot sake, I mean, it can start... You know, uh, you could start at 45 degrees Celsius and go 55 plus. So that's about, what does that do? 115 Fahrenheit and uh, 130 uh, Fahrenheit as well. Sure. So there's quite a range and uh, you do experience um, a complete different sake at different temperatures. 
Yeah, that's so, so fascinating to me uh, because you're you're absolutely right about the sake psalm versus uh, just a regular wine psalm because yeah. you, you throw – like with wine, if you're, if you're serving a cab, you, you have an accepted uh, temperature range to, to serve Correct. that at. And there, there's yeah. really not a question. But uh, so it's almost like with sake, you take all the bottles of sake you have and you have to multiply the complexity almost by three because you have three different modes of service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, is is there also a seasonality with the way that sake is, is sometimes served? Because when I was doing my research, mm-hmm. I came across... Um, Something that that may have indicated that hot sake was typically drunk in the winter, which kind of makes sense. That's when you want mm-hmm. a, a warm beverage. And mm-hmm. I I don't know if there's any other seasonality uh, aspects to sake that that also play into the way we understand it or enjoy it. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, in fact, if I could just throw some uh, a touch of history for people to understand a perspective here. Uh, sake, as we know, um, and we will, as we we know, we will talk about uh, the grades of sake, for instance. But Ginjo sakes are the light floral sakes. That is relatively a new phenomenon in the world of sakes, and it's actually post. Uh, I think it was post. Uh, it was about 100 years old after, during the war, after the war when industrialization came by and uh, uh, it, it was actually a polishing machine was actually um, invented that allowed people to um, polish the rice to such uh, levels that they could produce these beautiful light sakes which are part of the Ginjo family. But prior to that, you can imagine polishing a grain of rice and it wasn't really um, polished to such finesse. Uh, these sakes uh, were made when they were, say, during the winter winter months. They were made to be enjoyed warm. So traditionally, yes, it was enjoyed warm. And I tell you, when I was in um, Japan learning sake the first time, it was in the month of, uh, I think it was January, and it was cold. And when we would visit breweries, the one thing um, I must say is I don't think they believe in um, central heating. So it can be really, really cold. Uh, but when they, you know, the gracious hospitality would offer you a, a cup of warm sake on a cold night, you really felt like God loved you because it was the best thing. You know, they say it warms your body and your soul, and it truly does. So if it is cold and you wish to warm yourself, you could take your glass, uh, your cup of sake, and even if it's a ginjo, absolutely, and you you want to warm it, there's nothing to do it. Enjoy it because it really, really soothes, as I said, your body and your soul. So in terms of seasonality, you are absolutely right. Uh, sake in the winter months, you definitely, if you're just drinking sake without the intention of pairing it with food, uh, of course, it always loves food with it, but um, a warm sake is is absolutely the order for the moment uh in the summer months if you want to just cool yourself down to a chill sake would be fabulous so you could there is flexibility uh and the beauty is that the flexibility is there to suit the the drinker your your um uh, needs not the sake's demands so by all means in um you know in the cold months um a warm sake is Absolutely delightful, just as um, a chilled one is in summer. Now, how would I go about warming a cup of sake? Would I stick it in the microwave, or is there a device uh, like a little um, like I, sometimes mm-hmm. when you go to a Japanese restaurant, they have uh, a little a specialized uh, teapot with a mm-hmm. little um, little tea a tea a tea light underneath it that kind of keeps keeps it warm as you enjoy your meal. Is there a device like that for for warming sake? Yes, uh, there is. And uh, while I'm excited you asked me the question, I'm almost wishing you hadn't because I'll tell you why in a minute. You mentioned microwave. Now, uh, people do, uh, it's acceptable to use a microwave. But when, but I personally cannot handle the idea of putting this beautifully made, you know, cup of sake that has gone through so much, so many expert hands and so much love to create and then you stick it in a microwave. That's not my cup of sake, but uh, anyway, it is uh, doable and places do, um, uh, you know, say it's fine. However, 
it is not that difficult to warm up sake. All it needs is a warm water bath. So if you have a bowl of hot water and you place your uh, tukuri or a, as a decanter kind of thing, a sake flask in, or even the sake bottle into that uh, bowl of warm water, it really doesn't take a long time to warm up sake at all. Now you can, if you wish, there are beautiful um, sake warmers that you see at izakayas, for example, uh, that you know you can take it straight to the table, and uh, it has its uh, a little container for a warm water uh, bath, and then you can place the decanter in it. So that's possible. As you mentioned, there are some that have like a little burner underneath as well. Uh, that certainly uh, is a possibility. Um, if you went on Amazon, uh, you'd certainly find some options. Of course, if you ever in um, Tokyo, uh, there is a spot called. Kapabashi in uh, in Tokyo that uh, it's it's like a I don't know sake lovers or actually any culinary uh, lovers delight you could just go down there and there's so many different kinds uh, of uh, sake warmers that you could you know buy for home use as well uh, but other than that as I mentioned you do not need any fancy apparatus at all you just need um, you know a little uh, bowl of warm water and uh, your sake bottle and you're good to go beautiful well we will try and link to a couple of different options in the show notes so that folks can just explore what's out there but i so a couple of things i want to quickly get to before Mm -hmm. we talk about the different i guess classifications and grades of sake i i want to talk or I'd like to hear you talk about Koji because <laughs> we have come across Koji once before on the Modern Bar Cart podcast when I was yes. speaking to my friend Taka Amano, who runs the American yes. Shochu Company. Yeah. And I, I understand that Koji is also used in the production of sake. So can you just remind our listeners what Koji is and how it's used Absolutely. So koji is the star that makes sake. You need, I mean, you may think sake is made from rice, and it is indeed, but without koji, you wouldn't have sake. So what koji is, uh, koji is a molded rice. Now, it's not the kind of molded rice that, you know, you find at the back of your fridge that you forgot from, like, last week's takeout meal or something. This is actually a a very specific mold. Um, And what a brewer usually does is gets the koji spores, the the koji kin as they call it, and uh, they they scatter it over steamed rice. Now, this koji... um, I'll try to simplify because uh, it's very interesting, but it's also very involved. So the koji spores actually penetrate through into the the rice grains, and what its main function is to create enzymes. What kind of enzymes? The enzymes that will convert the starch from the carbohydrates, basically the carbohydrates, into sugars that are uh, that are in um, rice. So. It's important to understand why you need this process to happen. Let's start with, let's talk about grapes uh, in wine. So grapes have natural sugars. You, you know, you crush it, you've got grape juice, you've got, you throw in yeast and boom, you've got wine. I mean, very simplified way, but really that's what it is. Uh, with um, anything grain based, the sugars are not readily available. You need to convert the starch, the carbohydrates, into sugars. So let's talk about how this actually happens. So you see the koji kin, which are the koji spores, are sprinkled over steamed rice. These actually penetrate into the grain. And, of course, uh, enzymes, uh, these enzymes are created. Now, what these enzymes do, you see, rice, the the sugar in rice is in these complex uh, uh, carbohydrate molecules, starch molecules that are all connected and are not readily available to be consumed by the yeast. So, koji creates these enzymes that actually separates, breaks these molecules down. And now, when the yeast are ready to receive them, the the sugars are available to the yeast. Why is that important? Because the yeast will consume these sugars and then produce alcohol, carbon dioxide, and heat. Well, in the case of sake, uh, let's just focus on the al- alcohol part of it. The, the carbon dioxide, of course, you know, uh, goes up in the air, and that's not a problem unless you want to trap it for sparkling sake. 
which also is something that's being done uh, by very many uh, brewers right now. However, this koji is so very important because not only does it do the first initial production of sugar, so to say, for the yeast, in sake, the koji is added at, at different production levels so that it continues to create these enzymes and continues to uh, keep sugars ready for the yeast even while it's being fermented. So it's not just a process that's done ahead of time, but it's also done while uh, it is being fermented. And that's that's called parallel fermentation. And that itself is what makes sake so unique from beer or wine because they are more they they have a linear pattern of fermentation whereas this one has a parallel fermentation so that's the reason why you see koji is such an important aspect of sake making because not only does it start it's important from the beginning but it also carries right through into fermentation yeah that's so fascinating i really love that distinction and i i want to um offer a comparison so that mm-hmm. people really understand just how crucial the koji is and how it's how it's different from other types of grain-based fermentation. So for example, if you think about any uh, scotch or Japanese whiskey that's that's created using malted barley, mm-hmm. there's there's a similar problem between barley and rice, right? We've got starches, but we don't have sugars. And so with barley, the way that we uh, create those sugars is we kind of trick the barley into germinating by malting it. And and that's when those carbohydrates in in that instance begin to turn into sugars. And then the the distillers or the brewers will, will then halt that germination and then start start fermenting it but uh, and, and so that's kind of what koji does in the initial phase but th- so what, what you're saying is that not only do we have that initial phase where it unlocks the sugars from the carbohydrates we have a secondary phase where the yeast is doing its job but then the koji is doing a similar job alongside it which is another one of those instances where sake demonstrates a an added level of complexity compared to other fermented beverages, right? Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I think about it and I think, I wonder who who decided this was the case. And because this is a practice that is, koji is a practice that's been happening, you know, so long uh, ago, for such a long time. So it's, it's really genius if you think about it. And uh, so just like you mentioned in malting, the, that, that process is, is stalled in the same way in koji the you know i must tell you the one important thing that we don't talk about a lot is the skill of the toji which is the sake uh, the master brewer it, because it comes to such precision where you know he can decide when or she can decide when to actually stop that process and it's done like primarily think of it it could be done with uh, with cooling the temperature down but it's 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 decided precisely when that process is stopped uh, so you are absolutely right to uh, kind of talk about how very Important and how very brilliant this whole process is because with sake, yes, not only does it do it the first time, but it's like this, it's like the gift that keeps giving in the production process that, you know, it, because the yeast will, of course, the initial sake happily consume it, uh, the initial sugar, pardon me, but, uh, after that, you've got, uh, koji that keeps producing more sugars for it. So the, the fermentation continues and, uh, you know, we have sake as desired. So it's really a very brilliant process. So one last question I had before we move on to the different grades of sake is, are there different types of koji? Is it just kind of one thing that you can perhaps purchase like a brewer's yeast, where it's kind of like all the same, it's all kind of cranked out uh, in one style, or are there different types that have different effects on the end product? Uh, this certainly is uh, this, this certainly is a difference, and I'll explain what it is. So, uh, like I mentioned, a toji could, you know, he'll get his uh, the kojikin, the spores, but then he really can decide, you know, whether he wants to do this two kinds of. Uh, just to simplify it, I'll explain this the two major differences: uh, sukihaze and sohaze. So, um, 
Sukihaze is uh, where if you're interested in doing a cooler fermentation, a longer fermentation, Sukihaze is probably the kind of sake, of koji that the toji would like to uh, produce. Whereas if um, if the style is more robust, more um, uh, I would say good for say Jinmai's or Honjozo's, you probably want something that has a faster fermentation and probably a warmer fermentation. And so uh, the Toji could decide to produce his koji um, basically like a sohaze. And the difference is that sohaze uh, has got more, I would say, uh, the surface of the rice grain has got more accessible sugars than, than sukihaze. So as you well know, uh, the more the yeast struggles, uh, the more uh, or struggles, I shouldn't say struggles, but the, the, essentially the more stressed out the, the yeast, the, uh, the more it produces in terms of these fruity floral flavors. So for that very purpose, Osukihaze is a great option uh, to um, go for if the intention is to have a sake that is that that will be having a longer, uh, slower fermentation, a cooler fermentation. Got is it. Is that got kind it. of good? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so great. basically, the difference between the two types of koji is is uh, how easy it is for mm-hmm. the yeast to start gobbling up all of that sugar <laughs> in in the the rice. You say it so well. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got through koji. Let's talk about uh, the different grades of sake because I think this is where people who are listening at home, this is going to be one of their first access points because we're talking about sake. People are going to get interested. The first thing they're going to do is go to the liquor store and start looking at bottles. Now, what are they going to come across in terms of grades? So that's a very good question, um, Eric, because when it is true, someone walks in, into a liquor store and they're looking at all these sakis and they're wondering where to start with. So uh, let's backtrack again a, a touch. We talked about sake being made from rice, and, of course, we know koji. Sake is also uh, made – I mean, you need water, of course, to make um, – sake and ye- and uh, yeast which we also covered so these four ingredients this is pretty much you know all we need to make a perfectly wonderful sake however there is a fifth optional um, ingredient and that is dojis may decide to add a, a distilled alcohol to it a high strength distilled alcohol to it some sakes have it and some don't if the sake has this addition, it's either ginjo, honjozo, or just any, you know, whatever the sake is, it's just a regular sake. However, if it does not have this addition, it is called junmai. So jun is pure and mai is rice. Therefore, any sake that has the word junmai basically means that the alcohol produced in this sake is purely from rice, and there is no addition alcohol. It is not um, a uh, it is not a indication of uh, better quality. It is just uh, you know um, a, a, de- a definition of the style. So first things first, junmai is now you know about junmai. Okay. So now let's address the grades of sake. The word grade can understandably insinuate quality standards. In fact. Grades of sake are basically different sakes identified by how much the rice that is used to produce it is polished. One might say, why does rice need to be polished at all? We prefer to eat brown rice, as we know now, over white rice because of its health benefits and advantages, and rightly so because all its minerals, proteins, and essential fatty acids are on the outermost brown surface of the rice. While this is all good for our bodies, they can cause undesirable off flavors in a sake, and therefore polishing them away is a good option. It just so happens that the grades of sake are determined by how much the sake rice is polished. As the grade gets polished more towards the center, it loses its protein mineral content and can access more of its pure starch uh, at the core, which is called shinpaku. This pure starch is what delivers the purest form of sake that is elegant and aromatic. I must note that while we look for complexity in a wine, sake is prized for its purity. It does not matter how many flavors or aromas are identifiable. What really matters is how purely expressive they are. So, for example, if I can detect notes of, say, tropical fruit in a, fruit, in a sake, uh, and it is decisively, say, lychee, for instance, that is good. 
You see, so the purity of of your expression is what really matters. And that really comes from uh, how well it is made. So now you understand why it's important to identify the amount uh, the rice has been polished for the sake. Let's quantify the limits. For a honjozo, the rice needs to be polished to at least 70% of what it originally was. This is called polishing ratio and is usually identified on the label as a percentage. Uh, just a little kind of tip here. Sometimes it gets confusing when you see this number on a label and you wonder, okay, it says 70%. What does it mean? Is it 70% polished away or is it 70% left of the rice? The answer is whatever you see on the label is what's in the bottle. So if it says 70%, that means 70% uh, of polished rice is what, as in 30% was polished away, 70% was remaining of the rice that was used to uh, produce that sake. Okay, so the okay. low, the lower the number, the the more highly it was polished. Exactly, and that's again. Uh, so this is. I'm glad you brought that up because there are people really get confused. If you say 30% on a bottle, they go, "Well, it's only polished 30%." But the fact is, no, it's polished. 70% of it is actually polished away. 30% is what remained of the grain. So it's a very highly polished grain of rice. So. Um, now, we're talking about 70%, so that would be a honjozo. Now, if this sake is produced without the addition of distilled alcohol, as I mentioned earlier, it's called a junmai. Pretty much as simple as that. So, a junmai is a honjozo that did not have any alcohol added to it. Okay, so the first level is a honjozo or junmai. That is if no alcohol was added to it. The next level up is called ginjo. Here, the rice needs to be polished to at least 60% of what it originally was. That means at least 40% of the rice needs to be polished away. Of course, more can be polished and still be called a ginjo, but nothing less. Now, if this ginjo does not have any distilled alcohol added, it is called, obviously, junmai ginjo. That is the only difference between ginjo and junmai ginjo. At the topmost level is dai ginjo, as in big ginjo. And why do you ask? Because for any sake to be a daiginjo, the rice needs to have been polished to no less than 50%. That means 50% of the grain has been polished away now. And you can guess what a daiginjo with no added alcohol is called probably. Right, the Junmai daiginjo. There you go. So, so it's pretty. It's actually that simple. So if you think of the three levels, you've got, say, a honjozo at 70%. You've got a ginjo at 60%. And then a daiginjo at 50%. And then, if you just draw a line across all three of them, as in distinguishing that no alcohol was added in producing these sakes, at the honjozo level, the no alcohol addition would be a junmai. At the ginjo level, it would be a junmai ginjo. And at the daiginjo level, it's a junmai daiginjo. That's simple as that. Yeah, so it seems like the, the real question was a spirit added to it and that okay. distinguishes junmai from non junmai uh, and then the the everything else just simply relates to the level of polishing and this this sort of reminds me a little bit of brandy not ah not, yes right so it's kind of similar to yeah. the vs vsop exo exactly. type thing but instead of talking about how long it was aged it, it's referring to i mm -hmm. suppose the purity of the the starch that was being used in in that fermentation you know, and I'd like to point something again. Now, while these tears are there to distinguish how much the rice is polished, so you can you can expect uh, if you're looking at a label, if you see something that's a daiginjo, you know, 50% or higher, whatever, you you can know that it's okay. Um, I can expect to have a sake that's light and elegant and probably with fruity floral aromas and flavors. Whereas if I have a honjozo or junmai, perhaps, I'm looking at and say it's at, say, 65%, and I'm thinking, okay, well, it will have some good umami notes, it'll have a bit more acidity. So you can choose what kind of style you want. But by no means would I say that that would mean a daiginjo is a, be a better sake than, say, a, a junmai. In fact, you could have excellent quality junmais and uh, or honjozos that sometimes when you're having a, in a tasting and you, you you sip it beside say another daiginjo chances are the quality of your honjozo or junmai is 
far, far superior than even a highly polished Daginja right beside it. So it's not a measure of quality. It is just a distinction of style. Mm, and I think that really throws off a lot of Western consumers because what we're used mm-hmm. to is coming across bottles in the liquor store that are priced mm-hmm. in a way that sort of indicates quality. And, and yet here's an, here's another added level of complexity with sake where mm-hmm. it, it's we can't just look at the price and assume that it's or maybe not the pr- the price might be uh, a wrong um a wrong um distinction to draw but we can't just look at the level of polish mm-hmm. to to tell us what um what we want to get so um yeah i guess my question would be does does the level of polish uh or the the designation of the sake uh in in have any sort of like reliable um kind of corresponding uh, increase or decrease in price in the price of a bottle? The level of sake, yes. So you will find that a uh, something at the Daiginjo level would uh, be more expensive than a Honjozo. And that's actually a valid question because if quality really is subjective that way, then why does the, why are those prices so much more? Well, you've got to understand that there is more involved in creating a Daiginjo. The rice has to be polished that much more. You know, you have to, uh, like we talked of koji, you have to be more more specific in your koji production. Uh, your length of fermentation is longer. There has to be more control in it. So a lot more does go into the production of a daiginjo. Uh, so hence the price is certainly higher. Uh, but that said, you could get, uh, you know, a daiginjo for like here in Canada, our prices are quite astronomical but uh, like I mean anything you a, a really good Daiginja you could get from say 40 to 50 dollars uh, and um, I, I mean a really good Daiginja and uh, you know I mean of course the sky is the limit it goes up from there but uh, if you think about it it's quite comparable to wine I mean if you want a really good bottle of wine in uh, in Canada uh, you, you're definitely easily paying that kind of money so and like I said, this sake could not only give you uh, at a meal so many different experiences depending on uh, the temperature you serve it with, but it also has longer shelf life. So in terms of value, I think sake is uh, right up there. Yeah, that's it's just so fascinating to me. And, and mm-hmm. one thing that does seem to save the complexity, um, because sometimes, you know, when I when I approach a very complex category sometimes I'm almost turned off to it because it seems like there's so many places for me to mess up as a consumer and mm-hmm. end up spending a lot of money on something that I may not end up liking but it seems like with sake it's one of those categories where you can very easily start experimenting on the low end of the spectrum and then start forming some expectations that can lead you more reliably to some of the higher end spirits Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm pausing us here in this space for a very important reason. Next time, Lara and I are going to jump into some of the nuances of pairing sake with food and a whole bunch of other topics that you're going to absolutely love. It's going to show us in both of our elements and it gets a little bit silly, a little bit too serious and just so much sake love you're you're gonna really enjoy it uh that's it for this week on the modern bar cart podcast until next time i'm your host modern bar cart ceo eric koslick thank you so so much for listening Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, 
you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, Sake Insights by Lara Victoria, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This is has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.